Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Colgo World, it's uh, fantastic to be back. Uh, been a big week. Um, now, yields rise when prices fall on fixed income markets and that's something you're going to want to bear in mind this episode as we are turn our, our attention to bonds. Um, I've heard it said many times by market veterans over the years that uh, the real trouble always starts in the bond market. Our guest this week is Jared Kerr, Director of Fixed Income Strategy at Commonwealth Bank's Institutional Banking and Markets Division. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. Now, guys, uh, Jared is a highly credentialed strategist and economist uh, who writes what I think is some of the most compelling and colourful research you'll see out there. Um, been a fascinating period the last uh, three months, particularly in fixed income markets, eh? It has. Um, there's been a few game changers out there. We've, we've seen a new uh, US president, obviously, who's... Uh, mixing things up, to put it uh, politely, and um, from a, I guess, a business and markets perspective, we're looking, you know, not through the emotive language and playing the ball, not the man, and it looks like what he and the and the team over there want to achieve is going to be quite stimulatory for U.S. growth and particularly U.S. corporate. So we're seeing equity markets respond on the back of this, and of course, if we're seeing more growth and more inflation, we're starting to price in higher rates as well. On the, on the show this week, we're going to kick off quickly talking about some of the big news headlines we've seen in Australia, um, but I'm really looking forward to, you know, as we go, we'll pull back, I think, slowly and look at the global picture, um, particularly around we've got a, um, there's been a big uh, move in how the market is anticipating the US Federal Reserve's decision in March uh, this week. Uh, you've used the, the term full metal Trump. Uh, in, how, in terms of how this might all play out, maybe you can just quickly explain what you mean by that. Um, so we're sort of trying to keep things light, but Full Metal Trump is uh, basically a man who gets everything through uh, and all his wish lists are, are approved by Congress. And if that is the case, then that is um, remarkably stimulatory for the US um, government. The other term that we phrased was something along the lines of Forest Trump, where you get only a few things that get passed through and life's like a box of chocolates, you only get one or two. Um, if that is probably the more realistic outcome, in which case it's, uh, it's not as stimulatory, but it's still you know, good news for American corporates. It's going to be a fascinating chat. Um, I think we'll finish as well with uh, the global picture and demographics, because that's one thing Donald Trump can't change. Um, uh, so, um, Jared, you've been doing some really uh, fascinating research in that area too recently. Uh, let's start, Dave, with uh, GDP. Um, Australia's eco- astonishing economy does it again beats everybody's expectations, 1.1% uh, growth to the quarter. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, calendar year growth looking uh, in root health. Yes, it's, uh, it was a pleasant surprise after our 0.5 contraction in the September quarter. And obviously that extends our run without the uh, dreaded technical recession for over uh, 25 and a half years. So we're closing on in the Netherlands. I think uh, next quarter we'll equal them. And then another quarter, I think we'll find that we'll be the outright leader, presuming that we get there, of course. Um, looking through the details of the report, Probably the most surprising thing out of everything was the, uh, the level of household consumption. Uh, it contributed 0.5 percentage points to GDP. 
which was really much greater than what was expected, particularly with what we've seen recently with, uh, with recent wage growth and, uh, and incomes growth, which has been very weak. So uh, some of this, um, there's been a, a, a notable fall in the savings rate. Um, now that's, I suppose, technically, technically speaking, is people saving less than what they were before. Um, but that's falling. Now, is that sustainable? Uh, in my opinion, no. Uh, in the past, I'd probably associate a lower savings ratio with uh, you know, increased confidence, but I certainly don't think that's the case at the moment. Uh, during the quarter, and we saw that uh, nominal household disposable income went down or went uh, grew by 0.2%, so less than inflation. Uh, spending increased by 1.2, and that saw the savings ratio drop from uh, from 6.3% to 5.2. So Australians are essentially saving less than what they did in the past and they're spending, but they can only do that for so long unless they decide to go and, uh, and start borrowing again for purposes other than housing, which is uh, um, probably unlikely at this stage. You know, uh, one of the things about that savings rate is actually people getting ahead on their mortgages, make, making sure when that savings rate is higher, um, you, it tends to be people being ahead on their mortgage. So as that falls, and I think what's been really interesting is uh, the major banks have been reporting that they're actually very healthy levels. People are well ahead on their mortgage repayments when you look across the entire mortgage book, which is very encouraging when you think about maybe there might be some rate increases on their cards. Um, there's certainly been some moves on investor loans, repricing those up, uh, certain types of investor loans, um, repricing those up uh, a little bit um, over the last couple of months. Um, maybe anticipating, I suppose, some action coming from the regulator, or maybe the regulators in there having a word in their ears, or, or cost of capital to the uh, to the banks. That's another consideration as well. Very true. Um, but um, I, I just wonder now um, how you see this playing out over the coming uh, year. So, uh, Jared, I might um, put this to you. Um, we've had this big surge, you know, 1.1% growth, which is you know much stronger than anybody expected. It's uh, been driven by that, that, uh, that uh, stronger consumption, which was something that we actually saw weakening through um, 2016 in the middle of the year. That's bounced back. Um, what's your uh, take on how you see uh, economic growth uh, uh, performing over the, over the coming nine months in Australia? Well, just to, you know, I agree with um, what David said before. I think that the Australian economy is remarkable really is. The, the transition that we're going through is, um, is unprecedented and, and quite incredible. Uh, the mining boom that we had, never seen before in this country, and there's been gold rushes and there's been plenty of mining booms in the, in the past, but to go from around 1% of GDP for mining investment up over 8% and then to unwind in just a few years, uh, the fact that we can transition through this huge disruptive force I think is quite incredible. And what we're seeing now is the fruits of that investment. I mean, you Australians are pretty good at digging holes. Now you've got the stuff at the bottom and you're sending it overseas. That is the next boom that we're seeing, and it's this massive pickup in uh, export volumes, and it's occurring at a time when the price of those exports have gone up quite considerably. So the income uh, benefit we saw in that fourth quarter uh, result, and we expect that to continue over this year. One thing that we all look at is iron ore prices. We all look at coal prices. No one's looking at LNG. Now, Australia will be the largest exporter of LNG on the planet in 2020. We will overtake Qatar. That is quite an achievement, and that is one export that is, is only going up and up and is in pretty long contracts with the Japanese, so we don't need to be too worried about that falling away in volume terms. Um, so the, the biggest 
uh, I guess, contributor to Australian growth over this next year will be resource exports. The second will be the infrastructure spending, and I think we're not doing enough. I don't think the government's doing enough. We need to do a lot more if we want to boost productivity and potential growth over the next 20 years. Um, the third, I guess, driver for, for us is, is agriculture. It's this rise in Asian incomes and, and, um, and you know, our ability to provide food and, and, and other resources. And high quality food. High quality food, exactly, high quality. Um, and it is that, I guess, Asian income story that uh, you know, we've spoken about a bit in demographic pieces, but that is what Australia is tapping into. Uh, we are now close, very close to the economic centre of the world, which has shifted away from Europe and towards Asia. That's a population story. We're tapped into it. We've got great trade agreements with these countries, and I think we'll easily see you know, 3% growth this year and next. And that's about in line or a little bit above what we consider to be trend or potential growth. Uh, just to pick up on the LNG thing, it is a case of... Uh, if you like, um, history being about to repeat itself. So you had these giant uh, investment projects in, in Western Australia, particularly um, in terms of iron ore and through the mid-2000s, uh, um, and um, obviously seeing that increased capacity, uh, and obviously you get the, the big um, sugar hit from this uh, commodity rally, commodity price rally, particularly on iron ore that we've seen uh, in the last six months. Um, but then LNG, I saw just, um, I mean, you mentioned Japan, but we've also, you, you see China's uh, LNG uh, imports as they're changing their energy mix. It's just exploded um, in the last six months, which is um, obviously, again, if that's going to continue, it's very supportive um, for prices. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, as you mentioned, over the coming years, as that demand for LNG ramps up in various markets, as the energy mixes move, um, Australia is well positioned uh, to, to take advantage to take advantage of that. One of the questions here is uh, one thing that was very apparent in the in the GDP data we saw this week was earnings actually going backwards. Um, so this is about people's pay. Um, now uh, we've seen this big surge in national income hasn't filtered down yet to um, to I suppose household income. Um, what's going on there, and uh, how do you see that playing out? I mean, you're talking one quarter, uh, and so you do get bounces around. We had this surge in, in commodity prices, which translates into a surge in profits for that particular quarter. But yes, profits are running reasonably well, whereas wages is, is very soft in Australia. And this is actually a global issue. Um, now, we are sort of looking at, at all the tea leaves, and we think that over the next year, the stars are starting to align for wages to really start picking up. And we've seen a, a big lift in productivity, which is basically output per hour. Um, that would generally lead to a pickup in wages in time. Um, but yes, at, at this point in time, we're, we're seeing what we call a bit of a casualisation in the, in the labour force. So over the last 20, 30 years, we're, more of us are working on a part-time basis than before. Some of that's by choice. Some of it's not. So what we're seeing right here, right now, is we've got quite a large underemployment rate. So people have got a job, but they want to work for longer. Now, that, from an economic speak, means that we've got a bit of spare capacity still in the labour force that needs to be soaked up before we can all start asking for pay rises. But um, I think that we're at a point where the growth is good enough, profits are good enough, that we should start 
tapping our boss on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know what? Now's the time. I think um, Not for this, me, for the country. This is one of the things. <laughs> uh, well, uh, wasn't it uh, Ken Henry, um, uh, the, the um, you know, former head of Treasury, uh, now a company director, chairman of NAB, he was um, uh, saying that you know, business really needs to step up. Well, okay, you know, sure, but companies actually need to start biting the bullet on this. I do think one thing is very important. You, you, you called out there that it was just one quarter. You know, um, pay cycles and budgeting run tend to run on, uh, uh, you know, longer cycles. Probably mid-year is when we're probably going to see a whole lot of companies um, looking at their uh, wages budget for the year ahead. So you know, it might take that kind of period for it to wash through. Uh, and also, the boost to national income, though, those um, uh, commodity prices have been looking a little bit toppy. And you'd be crazy um, to uh, decide to start to lift your entire wages base just because you've had a good quarter. Like no company would do that, um, and it's probably not smart for the, to do at a sort of nation nationwide level. Yeah, uh, a lot will come down to how long the commodity price boom, as we we're describing, it, actually lasts. Um, as uh, Jared correctly pointed out, you know, underemployment's got around about eight and a half percent at the moment, so it's very elevated uh, underutilisation. So you combine underemployed and uh, and unemployed people is still in the teens, low teens. Uh, so that's not great. Uh, so what really we probably need to go and see to see a noticeable and uh, and, and more than like a, probably a modest pickup in wage growth is to see those high commodity prices sustained for at least a few uh, few few quarters. Uh, at the moment, we saw nominal terms of trade uh, grew 3% uh, in the, uh, the latest accounts. Um, the terms of trade lifted by 9.1%, which was like the greatest increase we've seen in about six years uh, in one particular quarter. So that's you know, a sign of what's going on with our commodity prices. That's great. And I can see that starting to go into like, you know, company profits, and that's going to flow through to the government. But you probably need to have it sustained for at least a couple of quarters to go and see any meaningful impacts in the, uh, in, in the wages side of things. Yeah, and um, as we highlighted before, um, that consumption component of, of GDP, uh, if that is weak, it was good in the last quarter, we got a good result. Uh, if it's weak, um, that's when, you know, um, regardless of uh, how much money is coming in through you know, increases in commodity prices, prices good company profits, um, if that consumption, uh, you know, doesn't, if that starts to pull back again, um, then that's when we might start to see a bit of a, a, a more worrying drag. Correct. It's, it, I'm correct if you're wrong, I think it's around about 60% of GDP is, is just household consumption alone. So that's why it's such a huge component of the, uh, the economy. That's why there's so much attention on that. You see the, the, the natural buffers, uh, you know, talking about export volumes and, uh, and things going to move around by quarter by quarter. But the core thing that generally just sits there and, and chugs away, you know, it hasn't been so strong in the second half of last year, but we saw a big pickup in the uh, in sorry um, a big pickup in the final quarter of last year. Uh, so realistically, you know what we need to go and look at there is you know, is the, the household savings uh, you know, decline can that be sustained with what's going on with uh, with wages at the moment? Um, there's one other little uh, pattern that we've seen lately, uh, which I'd like to ask you about, Jared. So we've had this surge in business confidence, right? So businesses increasingly feeling really um, uh, pretty bullish uh, about the outlook for the year ahead. Now, this is obviously part of the wages picture, as we say. You know, the, the, the business cycle may eventually catch up to this. We've had this big surge uh, in business confidence. Uh, and consumer confidence is kind of, it's okay, it's kind of, it's kind of flapping around. Um, what's your take on, on that gap between 
business confidence getting um, pretty optimistic, businesses being optimistic and consumers still a little bit cautious? Um, you know, it's a very good question. I think what you've touched on here on, on, the, on the profits and the, and the, you know, the pickup in, in, I guess, business income um, maybe reflected there, but also the fact that the currency is lower than where it once was. Um, and we've also seen stability in interest rates. I know they're rising in, in the markets, but from a central bank's perspective, the RBA has been crystal clear. Cash rate's on hold. It's not going up or down. Don't worry about it. Get out there and invest. That's the, that's the message being sent to, to businesses, and it's pretty loud and it's pretty clear. Um, so I think they are looking at the, the pickup in, um, in risk appetite globally, and they're seeing you know, their investors growing in confidence, particularly in international markets, and thinking, well, you know, this is translating down to, to our you know, businesses here in Australia. Uh, and I know our customers that we speak to, they're, we're, they're very wary about the politics here and, and, and a lot of the uncertainty, but ask them you know, similar questions to what we were asking them a year ago. They're definitely more upbeat. Can I ask you, just ask you on that, um, uh, on, the, on the, the, the policy uncertainty, um, so, I mean, how long has this been going on and is it really to do with the Senate or is it to do with the ideas that are coming forward from Canberra in terms of, um, you, know, try, you know, proposals, just parties putting up proposals one way or the other that are creative and actually help to tackle the, the real issues that businesses are facing? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think one of the, I guess, the saddest parts of, of the Australian economy over the last six years is that we haven't had, um, you know, strong leadership. Uh, I would say we're, and, and again, it's an issue for for a number of of countries. Um, we I think focus on the wrong problems here. Um, for instance, we tear ourselves apart over a AAA rating, which I don't think we even need. Uh, we tear ourselves apart over little issues where I think we should be thinking in you know sort of big, long-term themes like we need infrastructure. We really do. We need to focus on it. Set up a fund. Do whatever you have to do to increase the infrastructure in this country. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a bit uh, saddening, but it's certainly an issue that every country is facing. And I think uh, what we are now beginning to find is that fiscal policy is being realised as it's the policy that has been missing, not monetary policy. The central banks have done everything that they can. They've thrown the kitchen sink at this. They've even taken interest rates into negative territory. What else can you get these guys to do? Now we're seeing a few governments actually turning around saying, you know what, we're going to push the boat out. We're going to come up with huge infrastructure platforms. We're going to cut tax. We're going to really stimulate to get out of this. Now that is exactly what you need to do. If you look back in history, when interest rates drop to these levels, Normally, politicians are smart enough to say, well, gee, a 2%, 3% interest rate? Even we can make money at those levels. And they start spending. What we haven't seen is the spending post-crisis from, from governments. And, that, and people are revolting against those governments. Yeah, because they've seen infrastructure slowly degrading, um, and they're looking for, you know, where's the new road? I mean, it's obvious that we need... Uh, these different services in you know our bigger cities as they are now, um, and I think you know um, Trump has sort of um, he figured that out I think, and you know he's, he's looking at 
you know, deploying fiscal napalm on the, the, the American economy over the coming years. Um, but I think one, one thing that's been interesting in, from an Australia, Australian perspective, we had this long period, and this is a bit of a, a hobby horse of mine, so um, for regular listeners, you'll, you'll um, forgive me if, if I'm repeating myself, but we've been trapped um, by this whole um, political uh, talisman of, of budget surpluses. So, you know, um, basically you're not managing the economy if you're not delivering a surplus. Now, small budget deficits uh, in a country like Australia where there's a lot of tax levers um, and uh, overall the economy is well managed, businesses are good, there's you know, good population growth, all that kind of thing, um, that should be okay. I think Morrison has tried, Scott Morrison, the treasurer, has tried to move the dial a little bit on this, tried to manage expectations, you know, look, don't expect magic surpluses, you know, the way Joe Hockey was promising uh, over the course of three or four years. This is, this is a six, seven-year project now. Um, so he's tried to manage that expectation a little bit. But I still think in the overall policy formulation, there's this big reluctance to say, actually, you know what? We're going to get out and spend. Um, we're going to build, we're going to invest in universities, we're going to invest in um, uh, roads, ports and rail so that we can move the stuff that we produce around more efficiently uh, and be better um, uh, goods providers to the rest of the world. Um, and I have to say that it's something that's been very frustrating. I'm going to be absolutely fascinated to see how they manage what we've seen in terms of this income shock in the budget um, come uh, positive in income shock um, come the budget uh, this year because there's probably going to be an opportunity you would imagine be an opportunity to do a little bit more spend a little bit more maybe give a bit more back in income tax uh, all that kind of thing okay they just, they just need to explain the merits of running a deficit to go and invest not to go and, uh, and make payments that's the big issue the they haven't gone and communicated effectively no, the longer-term benefits, okay, yes, we'll have a slightly larger deficit at this point in time because we're building infrastructure that will then go and deliver growth and go and help us bring it back to, uh, to surplus in the four years. I would not be confident, though, of the ability of Scott Morrison to go out and make that case, uh, to be honest, um, because of the years and years and years of the coalition talking about got to get back to surplus, got to get back to surplus. Well, so what I actually hope happens here is I hope we lose our AAA. I really do. We don't need it. There are, I think, eight or nine AAA-rated countries uh, around. The United States is not one of them. The UK, not one of them. We are. Now, we're in there with countries like you know, Canada, who will probably lose theirs, um, Singapore, Switzerland, Germany, and a few other countries you can't even find on a map, like Luxembourg. Now, we are in a shrinking universe so AAA rated assets have shrunk in the last 10 years. So you know, AA plus is the new AAA in this, in this world. When the US lost their AAA rating, their bonds rallied more than any other. When the UK, just last year, got a double notch downgrade from AAA, their bonds rallied more than any other on the planet. Now, bond markets react to growth, inflation, term premium outlook. They don't care about rating agencies, right? A rating agency will tell you something's wrong six months after it's collapsed. You've got to be forward-looking here. And if we got downgraded, I don't think Australian bond market would react much at all. We will continue to see our government bonds trading roughly where they are. 
you would get the states downgraded, the AAA rated states, but their bonds are already trading close to the ones that are rated below them. So I don't think you'd see much of an impact there. Now I'm a bank, I represent a bank. Our bonds would get downgraded in this environment. Our bonds are already trading two notches below where we're, where we're currently rated. So I don't think even our bonds will have a huge impact in this world. And all of a sudden you've got that monkey off your back. The government can turn around and say, right, we are now in a lower universe, but geez, our metrics look fantastic in comparison to all the other AA-plus nations out there. Let's push the boat out. Because the inf that we can now really look at this infrastructure spending, we can um, do put in place better structural reform for Correct. growth. Yeah, for here, here. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, um, this uh, leads us, I think, very nicely um, into what we're going to look at, which is the wider bond market. And um, we're going to start with something really uh, interesting that's coming up uh, in March, which will be the next U.S. Federal Reserve decision. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, um, our guest this week uh, is uh, Jared Kerr, who's uh, Director of Fixed Income Strategy at uh, Commonwealth Bank's Institutional Banking Markets Division. Okay, um, Federal Reserve meets this month. Uh, in the last few days, um, we've seen pretty remarkable repricing of what's likely to happen at that, uh, at that meeting. Jared, do you want to take us through it? Yeah, look, the, the Fed has told us um, that they want to deliver three rate rises this year. And being a central bank, you, you probably want a little bit of symmetry around what you're doing. So you want something in the first half of the year, some, something in the middle, and something in the back end of the year. Um, we in markets, we just didn't believe them. Um, they've told us they were going to tighten a lot more than they had over the last few years and continually under-delivered. Now it looks like they're finally actually going to step up and do what they say they're going to do. Um, so a few uh, Fed speakers have come out in the last couple of weeks and, and turned up their rhetoric around rate hikes and that they need to be done sooner rather than later. And the pricing in, in fixed income markets has gone from, I think, around 30% probability to over 70% probability today. So the market's on board. Um, and uh, I think the important thing there is, is uh, if they deliver in March, then, well, yeah, the, clearly they're going to do three this year, market's only got two priced. So there's 25 basis points just in the very short end. And what I mean by that is, if you think about where a 10-year yield is trading in the United States, maybe it should be you know, a good 25, 50 basis points higher. Um, and that, I think, is the sort of reaction we'll see over the rest of this year. So the 10-year yield is currently? About two and a half. Two and a half, yeah. Um, now, look, those yields started lifting towards the back end of last year. Um, uh, then we had Trump and this whole, you know, this magnifying effect um, of, of uh, some things. Because things were starting to look a little bit better for the US economy. There was a little bit of wages growth. Uh, looked like inflation was starting to get back on track. There was definitely some notion um, that without Trump, the Fed would be looking to raise rates anyway. Um, that probably brought all that forward a little bit uh, forward. Can you tell us what you saw through that? Um, through that whole uh, period because the Trump reflation trade really has been the big story on, on global markets over the last couple of months. Absolutely. I think we need to go back to the, to the starting point where we were in the end of the world as we knew it, which was uh, the, the, uh, the Brexit referendum um, 
last year and, and, and yields crumbled to the lowest levels um, ever in the history of mankind in, in, uh, in August last year. Uh, we had negative rates you know, in, in I think 12 trillion of the, of the global um, bond market. But then we started to realise, well actually, you know, maybe the UK is still going to be there in six months' time. Maybe the sun keeps rising each morning. And yields started to creep higher. And as you said, you know, it's not all Trump. We, we were starting to build in um, a better growth and, and uh, an inflation outlook. Um, and if we were to take Clinton, so we were still thinking that the Fed would go in December and deliver probably two you know, hikes this year, but a more subdued outlook from, from that point on. We got Trump, who obviously a bit more of a firecracker for markets, uh, really did push uh, equities higher, in which case you start to add a higher rate profile. So interest rates have, have pushed uh, 100 basis points, or you know, full 1% higher uh, since, since August last year. Um, I'd say most of that is the Trump reflation trade, as, as you call it, um, and, that is, and that has effectively pushed Australian rates um, by about the same same amount here, so we're about a percent higher as well. Now, one thing that's interesting, that, that sell-off seems to have stalled for now. Yeah. Um, uh, look, this morning, Australian 10-year at 2.8, um, just a tiny bit above. Um, stocks have continued to rally. Um, so, well, at a global level, a different story with the, the um, uh, battling ASX. But I was going to write a couple of weeks ago. Don't, don't, don't dismiss it too quickly. <laughs> um, but uh, so if you look at those two markets, right, so one way to look at it is, is that the, the, particularly U.S. stocks, uh, that's looking at a better, healthier growth picture. But um, the bond market has uh, leveled off. Um, because why? Um, so a lot of what we think will be delivered by Trump is, is pretty pro-American equities. So he, he really is a protectionist uh, and he's wanting to cut tax for obviously American companies, not other. Uh, and um, if, he, if some other things come through, it's, it's very pro US and US centric policies. So we've seen, you know, their equity market burst through uh, record highs. But from an interest rate perspective, um, yes, we're pricing in a, uh, a greater Fed rate hike profile, but we're all just um, spreads to each other. Now, there's some pretty important dates coming up in Europe where, you know, you could get a, um, you know, a, a significant change in the French or, or German or, or other elections coming through. So the political risk has been factored in into their interest rate market. So you're seeing German Bund yields um, fall and the spread between German Bunds and, and, and French and, and Italian and, and other uh, debt markets widen. Now that is an anchor on, on how far treasuries can go because you've got these international fund managers who have got money either in bonds or in treasuries or in, in Aussie debt. Do you want to talk us through that a little bit about how they yeah. spread that, uh, that al those allocations? Yeah, so it's all about um, risk and reward basically. So if you look at if you look at Germany, you're you're, um, you're not risking a lot, but you're certainly not getting a lot in reward either. The, the yields there are very low. What's the, the two year yield? I think was uh, down here like negative point nine percent. Correct. So yeah. you don't even get your money back. Um, and this is a mindset which is 
developed post-crisis where people are just happy to get some of their money back, not all of it, let alone an interest rate on top of it. That's fear. And it's going to take a while to get rid of that panic. Um, and it's the behavioural side of things which we really need to turn around. But then you compare, say, those yields to the US, you're getting 2.5% on a 10-year compared to you know, 10, 15 basis points on a 10-year German yield. You would buy that all day, every day, and it's, and it's even more liquid. And then you look at Australia and you're getting, as you said, another 30, 40 basis points above a US Treasury for a higher credit rating, don't forget. Um, that's why our, our bonds remain quite attractive. So we are nothing but a spread to each other for these you know, multi-trillion dollar asset managements. Um, and, and that, I think, is why Treasuries haven't sold off as much as they, as they have. There's still a lot of QE going on in this world, so there's still you know, central banks printing money to buy bonds. Um, the Fed has stopped. Now, the big question for markets is what happens to the Treasury curve when the Fed actually unwinds their balance sheets. And to be honest, we don't know. Now, the Fed's telling us that we think that there'll be about 15 basis points per year and it'll add up to about 100 basis points in total because that's what their modelling tells us uh, they've taken out of the market. Now, that's, you know, that's a 2.5% going to 3.5% before you've even factored in any extra growth or inflation or the like, just term premium. Um, so it's it's very interesting time for, for bond markets. There is a lot going on. There's a lot we've never seen before, and there's a lot we don't know about the next how things will play out in the next 10 years. I want to ask you one thing, um, and it's on the, the, the emerging market debt side. Um, so the effect of a strong dollar, um, a stronger dollar, um, uh, on, on, on these emerging markets and the debt that's held there. Um, what, if US rates start to normalize, um, we may see the dollar continue to strengthen. Um, so that, do you think that has the potential to cause problems elsewhere? So US starting to normalize, um, their economy may be looking good as the Trump stimulus starts to wash through, you get more jobs, you get inflation, all that kind of stuff. But um, how do you see the impacts in, in other areas? Uh, that's a very good question. And um, you know, emerging market crises always spike about a year after the Fed starts tightening or, or dollar strength. Um, and the reason for that, we're, we're certainly not all created equal right now. Now, China is a uh, emerging market doesn't quite have this problem if you look at it compared to say an Argentina or, or a Turkey or some of these other nations. So if you've got large levels of US dollar debt and the US dollar goes up, obviously the value of your debt's just gone up with the, with the dollar. It's not like having an Australian mortgage and the Australian you know, currency goes up, who cares? It's still an Australian dollar mortgage and you're earning Australian income. But if you're earning Australian income and all of a sudden you have to pay US debt, that's a problem. Now these countries have, there are quite a few countries that have that sort of problem. Um, and I think in a year's time, yeah, we might see some flare-ups in, in parts of the world. Um, but importantly for Australia, it's not China. Now what, uh, we, we are worried about levels of debt in China and where that debt's held. Um, but it is mostly in its local currency, the yuan. It's not US dollars, which is a massive difference. So the US dollar can go anywhere. A lot of their debt's just in their own currency, which would be depreciating in that, in that uh, environment. 
plus China is a current account surplus country. So they've been earning more money from the rest of the world than they've been paying out. So they've got trillions of, of, um, of assets overseas, about two and a half trillion, that they can pull back on any given day to plug holes in their economy. But yes, I do think that we'll get a bit of turmoil in some of the emerging markets in the next year or so, which will cause a bit of excitement, but I don't think it'll derail the, uh, the global growth story. I might just, might just cut in really quickly. Is there a particular indicator that you may watch? So, people listening to the, uh, to the podcast, is there something that you may look for to go and have like an early warning signal in your mind to say that no, there is some sort of a, uh, some crisis that may be forming in emerging market bond uh, bond markets there? Well, yeah, the bond market, the bond markets themselves, yeah. and the equity markets. So, if you start seeing you know, signs of stress in, in emerging equity markets, so you know the smart money in the world taking taking it out and going, well, we just, we just want the safety of the Dow or the DAX or the, or the Aussie ASX, then you know that they've seen something. So it's equity markets, um, you know, surprisingly um, ahead of the curve and, and efficient. So when they start to decline, you know that maybe in six months' time that there'd be something that's really developing beneath the surface. And in particular, you look at insto flows in that aspect, so, so institutional investors who you know, maybe know more than what, uh, than what the layperson on the street would, would understand what's going on? Uh, I, I think just the, the, the industry itself okay. is, is a pretty good um, you know, indicator as to, as to stress, and that would show you whether it's retail or institutional, whatever monies that's been taken out. Uh, one of the things, I guess, as well about, um, about the fixed income markets is that there'll tend to be this rush to, to, to the safety of bonds, um, uh, which will depress yields uh, in times of concern about geopolitics, right? So, uh, and this will affect, you know, huge uh, uh, trillions of dollars in, 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 in capital movement and capital allocation when, we, when, when there are times when things look shaky or unstable. Now, certainly with, it, with the Trump administration, we've got, I wouldn't say necessarily belligerent but, um, or, or bellicose, but certainly a more assertive uh, foreign policy picture that we're, um, that we're looking at. Um, uh, there's been the sort of disruption around China, the, the questions about um, Russia and how they manage that relationship, all that kind of stuff. I think one of the interesting things from your, uh, one of your recent research uh, notes is that there's nice upside risk uh, in terms of um, like there's a decent level of upside risk, um, but while the downside risks are more remote and um, they are more severe, um, uh, can you talk us through that? Yeah, you're right. So if we if we think about what the policies are out there, that they're quite protectionist, right? So it it's what the reaction to those policies are. I mean, if, if Trump comes out and says, I want to put a tariff on China and China alone, then China's going to turn around and say, okay, we're at war on a trade basis, right? Not a physical basis. But, um, and that could be quite damaging for all of us, really, if you see these two economic heavyweights butting heads. But what we've seen so far from Trump is that it's actually a blanket policy. It's not just picking China, or Japan, or Germany, it's well, all, all of the above. Yeah, oh, sorry, Mexico, obviously, build the wall. But it's quite a blanket policy, which means that we might not get as much of a, um, aggra aggregated, sorry, yeah, aggravated response. Um, where it does look pretty 
poor as if these guys go to, to some sort of war. Now, now um, from our perspective, you take a look at the United States, and the United States is not as influential as it used to be. Uh, there's about 55 countries that, are the that have the United States as their largest trading partner. Right? That's down dramatically. China has 126 countries as their largest trading partner. Australia is one of them, New Zealand, you know, we're all on board this China story and China is integrating Asia. Uh, if anyone's interested, you should go and have a look at the new Silk Road which has been developed over the next 10 years. Absolutely mind-boggling. And they are pulling a bunch of countries together in the most populous part on the planet. And I think, you know, the, the interconnectivity of, of this part of the world is growing stronger and stronger. Um, China is the second largest economy in the world. There's another economy which everyone's forgotten about, and that's India, and they will be the third largest economy in 2030. There's a fair amount of growth just right on our doorstep. And um, also India, very industrious uh, too, um, very creative, uh, huge um, swathes of the population are English-speaking, um, uh, and, and highly skilled. Um, I think it's been you know remarkable uh, uh, story um, there. Um, you know the, you've got a government that's really introducing some proper reforms through the through the economy. Modi, um, you know, always seen as a um, a pro business candidate, if you like, pro business uh, prime minister. Um, but he's also doing things that are trying to tighten up some of the. I suppose less desirable parts of the the Indian economy is cracked, cracking down on corruption. There was that demonetization uh, project where he, he got everybody to um, to basically hundred rupee uh, notes, yeah, high, high denomination <laughs> notes gone. Um, so and you know that deals with money laundering, uh, black economy, um, all that kind of thing. I think one interesting thing out of that was a, there was a huge surge in sales of iPhones uh, in the middle of last year in India. Uh, because so it was very nice for Apple, um, because people were wondering what they would do with all this money that they had, you know, large denomination notes stuffed under the bed. One thing you can do in that situation is, oh, I probably need to upgrade my phone. <laughs> <laughs> or it could become a currency. You know what an iPhone's worth, and as a medium-term sort of solution, you just convert it into something what you know everyone agrees the price on. Yeah, that's right. It's fixed price around the world. Yeah, that's right. Apart from in, I think, in Venezuela, where it's where they cost. Something like uh, ten thousand US dollars. Well, also seen, yeah. Yeah. You've yeah. also seen gold go up. And, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, okay, now um, it's been a fascinating conversation so far. Um, uh, now, one thing about this is it's all kind of short to medium term, right? Yes. Um, demographics are destiny, um, and there. I've seen some amazing research from, from yourself which looks at um, population growth uh, and interest rates and uh, most amusingly it was, uh, you know, but going back through, you know, as far as back as records go, how far back do records go? Well, we reckon about 10,000 uh, 10, BC, so <laughs> pretty, pretty good start. Um, so, and, and, you know, the best data that we have is, is an, an awesome chart and I promise I will um, put it on the site alongside this podcast. Um, which is the world population growth um, accompanied by the average interest rate. Now, back in the uh, sort of 10,000 to 2,000, the best data we have is that, you know, 
interest rates were between uh, 20 and, and about 10 percent. But then they started sort of bottoming out. And we had this kind of normal period where things were between, say, 5 and 10, uh, all the way up to the start of the 20th century. Um, but what happened then was we had the two wars. And then after that, Jared, um, something remarkable happened. Um, yeah, so um, we came home from from two of the you know bloodiest wars in, in history, and, and we settled down. And um, you know our grandparents or or, or parents, um, you know that they they, uh, they came back and they they started a family, and, and on average they had four kids, which is quite a lot. Uh, and over the next thirty years, we we um, we doubled our population on the planet, which is remarkable. We've never seen that before. Uh, so, you know, global population went from, I can't remember the figures now, about two and a half to, to, to five uh, in 30-odd in years. Now, that was remarkable, but then when you think about what's happened since, the, we're not having four uh, children each. We're, we're having sort of two and maybe it's even dropping below that um, on average. So we had a surge in, in, um, in population, uh, and that surge in population drew down on resources, and we saw a, um, a spike in, <coughs> excuse me, in, uh, in interest rates to the highest levels we've ever seen since, well, whatever we got there, uh, 3000 BC. So, um, <coughs> and, that was, uh, and that was quite interesting. Now, every central bank uh, around has, has been targeting uh, inflation because of this uh, spike that we saw during the 70s and 80s. Now it was exacerbated by you know OPEC and and, and other things that were happening there and, and rigidities in our in our uh, various markets. But um, we all focus on inflation because of that period. And if you just want to look back over human history, it's it's quite actually unusual to to get that. So I think what we'll see over the next 10, 20, 30 years is that we will start looking at other things as well, not just inflation. Yeah, so um, there is this issue um, now which is uh, incredibly important to the bond market um, and obviously also to, to equities. Um, I saw some research actually during the week that you know, there's a whole bunch of companies that are going to do well, um, on the listed companies that are going to do well out of um, this aging of the population and it's companies like uh, Hermes, the, uh, the, the high, very high-end Luxury brand, um, other, um, you know, as you get wealthy, more and more old people, you're going to have more and more wealthy old people, uh, and they're going to want nice things for themselves, all that kind of thing. But what's also super important for those people is people get towards the end of their uh, working life, they want to make sure that some of their that their earnings, their savings are protected, uh, and this is having a really um, this is having a profound effect on on demand for bonds. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we, uh, you know, our highest saving is, is while we're working, obviously, and, and getting that income and we're putting stuff away and, and buying assets and those assets increase in value. And, um, so our saving um, across age actually increases into, into our sort of 50s and 60s and we really start putting away nest eggs for our retirement. But then once we retire, well, we're not earning money anymore, we're, we're spending. Uh, so our consumption is, you know, it overtakes our savings, and our savings runs down until the day we die, uh, and we're living for a lot longer than we thought. So, you know, we, most people would like to retire in the, in the early 60s, probably think they're going to kick the bucket in the 70s and 80s, and find out that they're living into their 90s. 
Um, or more. It's a big, or more, <laughs> right? There's a lot of 100-year-olds around uh, than what there was uh, not, not so long ago. So um, that's an interesting development and one in which you know, people will put money into fixed income and the, and the, you know, the steady annuity flow over that, over that time. Which is, we've had this theme in, in markets, well, particularly when things were kind of quiet um, during the sort of dessert um, mm. period, uh, which was this hunt for yield, uh, where you had just anything that had the sniff of a kind of steady return, um, there'd be demand for it. Um, uh, and um, this is now, I think, really interesting question because once um, so we say, um, you know, say there's, say U.S. Treasury get to three percent, right? The yields get to three percent. All of a sudden, people say, "Hang on, three percent? I'll have some of that." Absolutely, and we've seen it already. I mean, uh, <clears throat> we uh, we thought yields would be higher than what they are today, right now. You know, our forecast of a few, just a few months ago. And we do see this wave of, of buying when we get to attractive levels. And here we are at two and a half, apparently that's attractive. And you're saying three, I can guarantee that'll be attractive. And three and a half would be very attractive. What I guess we're saying here is um, most people would look through history and say, well, geez, yields are going to back up like they did in 94 and we're going to see, you know, five, six, seven percent. It's not happening. We're in a new world. We've got new potential growth rates because of this ageing, uh, and uh, demographic issue, um, yields will back up, but they're not going, you know, into the fives and sixes like we once had because of exactly what you're saying. There's a there is still a pile of cash out there um, look, looking for looking for yield. Just want to fix you on one thing. Uh, what is your uh, forecast for RBA rates this year? Nothing. On hold. Yeah. Yeah. So we we think that. The hurdle, as, so to speak, for a rate hike is incredibly high. The hurdle for a rate cut is also quite high, but more likely than a hike this year. So if things were to, to go wrong, obviously the central bank's going to step in and, and do what they have to do to make sure that they, we don't fall into a recession. And there's a few risks on the horizon. But if all things go well, really well, I don't think they're going to step in and snuff the, the uh, return on inflation. They'll wait and they'll make sure that it's baked in and it's happening and we are actually getting a lift in wages before they decide to get on the other side and, and start normalising rates. So our best guess is the second half of 2018 when, when interest rates will start to rise. So a long way to go. Um, and one other question, uh, your outlook on the property market, how, I mean, everybody wonders this, um, how big do you think the risks are? Uh, there's, always, there's always risks and I guess every year that we're growing at 10 plus percent you'd have to think there's an increase in, in, in risk of some sort of correction at some point in time. Um, but when you look at the Australian property market you've got to break it down into simple supply and demand and we're not supplying enough to, to meet the demand. We have seen quite a surge in residential in investment um, and it is uh, starting to catch up to, to demand particularly in some states um, but generally speaking we've, you know, we're okay. Um, there's a few things you need to look for for a bubble. Um, it is that demand supply imbalance, but it's that belief that prices will only ever go up. And yes, we do have that problem in Australia. But then the other part is the leverage associated with it. Is there dodgy lending in this uh, economy? Is that fueling a bubble? Uh, we, would, we would argue no. Dave, um, just on that interesting comment from the um, New South Wales Housing Minister 
last week. Yes, Aussies are remarkable. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, you know, uh, buy a Sydney property and you're set for life. I thought that was a lotto game that you could go and play or a scratchy game or something like that. But apparently, uh, apparently so. You know, just, all you're going to do is go and buy a property, leave her up, and you're, uh, you're set for life. So that's the new, new South Wales uh, housing minister's advice. Yeah, that's right. Um, housing is a difficult asset. It really is because we're so emotionally attached to it. And the turnover of it is just so low. I mean, yes. we're talking 1% to 2% of the market that turns over. It's not like an ASX stock, which you know turns over in a day. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an asset that we put so much value into, and it's really hard to, to, to value it properly. Um, and you know, we saw during the crisis you know, a spike in unemployment, and we thought, right, this is it. Property prices in Sydney are, are declining for sure. And um, you know what? People fought tooth and nail to look after their house over anything else. You will sell your stocks, you will sell everything else, but you will guard your house at all costs. Now that's a big difference between you know a BHP share, which people can can drop. Um, yeah, happy to walk away from. Happy and, to walk away from. Um, and where we where we differ from, say, the likes of the United States, is um, their lending practices were very different to ours leading up to that crisis. Uh, subprime was a much larger proportion. Our so-called low doc, doc loans here that we had actually went to very wealthy individuals and actually outperformed a lot of other loans, believe it or not. Um, and then you, you sort of look at the lending practices over there and their ability to throw keys back at the bank is a, is a big difference. Yes, yeah, so they can walk away from the debt, which is a key aspect. And you know, uh, also I think you know this the the, the arrival of it doesn't take many uh, wealthy. Uh, foreign investors to be roaming around the Sydney property market and be willing to pay a very, very significant premium on mm. um, on houses in these prestige suburbs with water views where they want to live. And there might only be a few houses on the market each week, and there might be two or three guys fighting over it, and they've got deep pockets. And that has going to have an, an automatic effect on the overall median price. Um, yeah. So, um, look, this has been a fascinating chat. There's one thing that's really important that I need to ask you before you go, Jared. Um, who's your super rugby team? Uh, it's the, uh, the Auckland Blues. All right. I say that quietly, although they did all right last week. All right. <laughs> not, not the best season last year, but uh, they're doing all right. Probably, um, Maybe this is the year. I think we've said that every year. So. Who's, who's, the, uh, who's the new bloke who plays on the wing for the Blues? I think he, he, he was a superstar last week. I can't remember what his name was, but uh, yeah, he is, uh, he's going to be the, um, the next Loma, I think. He's um, incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, obviously, um, normally uh, I w would get up and watch most of the Six Nations games, um, particularly France, um, uh, because I hate playing France. Um, and it's always very as a Kiwi, I can understand. Just a little bit of history, you know. Remember Rainbow Warrior, all that kind of thing. Um, but um, uh, but uh, this year I haven't. Um, we, we've got a we've got a, a, a little boy, um, so um, sleep is at a premium uh, in in the Colgan household at the moment. But uh, it looks like it may come down to. Ireland against England in Dublin uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, basically, Ireland need to win and flog them. Um, and that's where Ireland have been playing, um, not out of the um, 
Uh, that's not out of the, beyond, uh, the bounds of possibility. Well, Although, I'll tell you what, you certainly beat a pretty good team last year. Yes, they, they, they were pretty good. Um, it took, we needed to go to uh, Chicago to do it. But yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter where you go, it's yeah. still a win. It was a, it was a fantastic game, to be honest. I mean, it, from a, uh, an All Black supporter's uh, point of view, there's, there's probably two teams we don't mind losing to, and, and Ireland's one of them, and I think Wales would be another. Just, you know, the, the passion that those guys have for rugby is incredible. Um, don't like losing to the South Africans. Right? My wife is South African, so that really hurts. <laughs> I don't think anyone likes losing to the South Africans. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, the other thing is, look, you almost don't need to say it, nobody likes losing to the English, uh, and everybody loves to beat them. Um, okay, uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I've been here with Global Markets and Economics correspondent David Scott. I had a great listen today, and like, fantastic, Jared. Thanks for coming on, really interesting stuff. And as I said, our guest uh, this week has been Jared Kerr, who's Director of Fixed Income Strategy at Commonwealth Bank's Institutional Banking and Markets Division. Jared, fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. The show's being produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.